It's philosophy talk. This woman has to be gotten to a hospital. A hospital? What is it? It's a big building with patients, but that's not important right now. Who has a right to decide my own medical treatment other than me? I don't need no doctor because I know what's in it. The point is, Turk, if someone tried to pull the plug on you without being totally honest with me, you know where they'd end up? In hell watching The View. Next to the super high unreachable cupcake table. I don't need no doctor, no, no, because I know what's in it. Is consent always necessary before treating a patient? There's a whole list of people who don't get to make their own medical decisions. The severely depressed, the mentally ill, children. I've been too long away from a baby. Oh, I'm coming down with a misery. The limits of medical consent. I guess it's Jody Halpern from the UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Ever permissible to force medical treatment on a patient against their will? What if they're so emotionally distraught that they can't even think straight? What if they might die without the treatment? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. And I'm Laura McGuire sitting in for John Perry, who's taking a well-deserved break. And we're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ken teaches philosophy, and I'm director of research for Philosophy Talk. So, uh, Laura, how do you like stepping out of the shadows and into the broadcast booth after all these years? Oh, Ken, it's not even remotely terrifying. Oh. Thank you for asking. <laughs> I know you're going to do it. You're going to do just fine. Now, today, we're thinking about the limits of medical consent. There are some people who are not fully competent to make their own medical decisions, but where exactly do we draw the line between the competent and the incompetent? Well, at one extreme, we've got children. I mean, I have no problem with if a skittish nine-year-old refuses to let the doctor give her a much-needed shot. I see nothing wrong with making the kid take the shot. I'd be gentle about it, but make the kid take the <laughs> shot. Well, there's also some adults who are just cognitively impaired. For example, a person in a coma can neither grant nor withhold consent, but we don't deny them care because of that. Yeah, that would be really that would be really strange to do. Now, immaturity and incapacity like being in a coma, they'll seem like the easy cases, Laura. But here's the harder question. Is it ever okay to compel a mature adult who is not incapacitated to undergo a medical procedure against that person's will. No, if they're not incapacitated, can we can't coerce them. We need to respect the patient's autonomy. Oh, that's easy to say, but look, suppose you've got a patient with, I don't know, very poor impulse control and very little foresight, very little capacity to reason logically. So you're thinking of a grown-up who has the maturity level of a six-year-old, something like that? Yes, that's exactly what I'm thinking of. This patient keeps promising to change their habits. They keep promising to make better choices. They say, I'll come in for that treatment. I will, I will. But each time they fail, and they fail over and over and over again. What are you going to do as that person's physician? Well, you know what, Ken? Here's the reality. At some point, grown-ups have to live with the consequences of their choices. That's the burden of being an autonomous being. Yeah, it's easy to say. But look, this patient isn't really a fully functioning adult. And by leaving the decision entirely up to them, 
Aren't we making helping to make things worse for them? Aren't we doing some harm to this kind of patient? And, and, you know, physicians are supposed to do no harm, but you're doing harm. Well, you'd be doing them a much greater harm if you simply took away their right to decide. That would be infantilizing them. You'd be denying them their basic human autonomy. Okay, I know. Okay, you love autonomy. (laughs) I love autonomy, too. But let me give you a case of a different kind. Suppose a man loses his wife in a terrible accident, and he's injured too, very grievously injured in this accident. He's so grief-stricken that he can't imagine going on. He's so so distraught he refuses urgently needed medical treatment that would help keep him alive. Now, do you force the treatment on him against his will, or, or do you just... Let him die. Ken, that's very black and white. I don't see why there's an either or here. I mean, the obvious thing to do would be give him some time to get over his grief and then let him decide for himself what he wants to do. Uh, You're trying to take the easy way out. I'm (laughs) going to just stipulate. You can't wait, okay? If you wait, he dies. It's my example. If he waits, he dies. (laughs) Okay, we'll, we'll stick with your example. I don't know. In this case, I mean, I would hope... He would eventually get over his grief, but in the meantime, I suppose I would do whatever I can just to keep him alive. Okay, so tell me why this case is different from the first in which you had this childlike adult. Why is it different from the first? Well, because letting a person die because they're grief-stricken is much worse than letting some overgrown juvenile continue to live in an unhealthy or irresponsible way, whatever that is. Well, wait a minute. What if the grief-stricken person, patient, doesn't see it this way, Laura? He, suppose he comes back in a year. He's fully physically recovered, but he's still in the throes of profound grief. What are you going to do then? Well, if I was this patient's doctor, I suppose I would ask him, is he seeing a therapist? Is he getting benefit from that therapy? If he's not, then I might recommend a good grief counselor to him. You're still looking for the easy way out. (laughs) I'm still not going to let you off the hook. He doesn't want any more counseling. He refuses all counseling. What he wants is to end his life. And he thinks you owe him because you made him live last year. And he asks you as his doctor, help me. So you want me to help him commit suicide? Yes, that's the question. Would you do it? Should you do it? Well, that's a very difficult question. I mean, it would be one thing if he was terminally ill, but if he's physically healthy and he asks me to end his life, I don't think I would or that I should help him die in that situation. What he really needs is better psychological support. But but let's go back to autonomy, Laura. Can we really force someone to live against their will? Why is that any more acceptable than forcing them to undergo medical care against their will? You know what? I'm not even going to answer that question, <laughs> Ken. Instead, I'm going to leave it to our roving philosophical reporter, Liza Veal. We sent her out to examine some real-life cases from the perspective of a California doctor who regularly deals with just this kind of dilemma, up close and personal. She files this report. Here's an email that I got yesterday saying, I have been battling with a mental illness. Um, I fear becoming insane. This burden is too much to bear, and I want to end my life. Could you help me with this decision? Dr. Lonnie Shavelson gets a lot of emails like this. Uh, Another patient says, I would like to learn more about assisted suicide or how to obtain the drugs I need for a peaceful death that would not traumatize my two adult children. 
I'm hoping you can help me with a quiet and dignified end. They're typically writing for the same reason. I get a significant number of requests from people who have emotional illnesses who are asking me to help them in a suicide. Um, what I do and what my medical practice is is physician aid and dying for terminally ill patients. People with a prognosis of six months or less. This has been legal in California since 2016. But the law doesn't apply to the people emailing Dr. Shavelson. It has no provision for people who are not terminally ill but suffering severely emotionally. There just is no provision for that. Consent is a big part of why. The idea is that a suicidal person is mentally compromised and therefore doesn't have the capacity to consent to the procedure. But in their emails to Dr. Shavelson, many people insist that their desire to end their life is rational. They say things like, You know, I've been depressed all of my life. I've been miserable all of my life. I have been to Stanford, UCSF, various physicians. I've taken all the medications and all that. I just can't go on anymore. And I may fully agree that that person, they're ready to die. And they feel they have the same right as terminally ill people to die with dignity. But they need a doctor's help. A nonviolent suicide is hard because not all medicines work. There's a lot of mythology out there of, oh, I could just take, you know, 10 pills of the following and I'll die, and often it doesn't work, and you wind up coming out more damaged than you started. Wanting to eliminate those risks and spare your family members from witnessing that violence may be totally rational, but the patient's wishes and capacity to consent isn't the whole equation. There's also the consent of the physician. Patients can't just demand any treatment they want. So for example, you come in and you tell me that I have a, an itchy right elbow, and you say you would like antibiotics for that. And you can say that it's your autonomous decision to want antibiotics for that. And I still have a professional responsibility to say we don't use antibiotics for itchy right elbows. In other words, it's up to the doctor to decide what's right for you. And when it comes to assisted suicide for emotionally suffering people, Dr. Shavelson says he can't make those judgment calls about who really will never get better. There's a point both as a human being and a physician where I have to make a decision to ignore my own wishes. His wish as a doctor to help his patients and give them what they're asking for. That's not only because the law says I can't. It's an admission of my own fallibility. The human fallibility in each of us, even doctors. That's why even if it were legal, Dr. Shavelson says he'd never consent to participate. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Liza Veal.